0: All about breakups with real experiences from ordinary and everyday people. My name is Ira J, and I'm your host. This week we talk with Killian Shale. Killian Shale is Enda Shale's brother. Enda did a podcast episode with us a couple weeks ago where he said he talked about loving his family from a distance, and by doing that, he truly found who he is, and he's able to get his mental health controlled and just focused on himself. And so he did talk about the struggles of his brother and father's addiction. And so this week we are hearing from Killian and how he has able to handle his addiction and is now sober for three years. So if you haven't listened to Enda's episode, please do so you can hear the back kind of story and his version of it and whether you listen to that that episode before or after this uh this this episode doesn't matter but i suggest you listen to both (laughs) and so yeah uh stay tuned for the reflection section at the very end of the episode thank you Thank you for joining us. Um, so was it hard for you to hear Enda's in um interview?
1: Um, I mean I guess it's always it's always hard to to hear um, about someone you love going through a, a tough time definitely but I think um m- more than anything else, I was just so proud of him to to, to come on and, and speak about a topic that's so um you know personal and and you know I do I know what' it's like to 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 talk about you know stuff that's you know really really hard and um, to, to like a big audience and um, but i also know like what you get from it um, and and it, it's you know you get so much out of it and um you know if you can if you can reach even like one person like who's going through a similar thing you know then it's worth it but like you know it will reach way more than one person you know his story yeah. Um, and i'm sure a lot of people can relate to it and um yeah i it was, it was it was great to hear i mean i i know that like you know my my story Im- impacted you know everyone around me and and you know everyone was everyone is definitely recovering with me yeah and you know sometimes like i i i forget that as well like you know i'm just get caught up in my own uh story <laughs> and then you know, it it you know it can be a real. I can get really selfish way of thinking sometimes. So like to, to to hear Enda speaking about it, you know, it it was definitely hard, but it definitely, you know, reminded me um of of everything that you know, of of the ripples that go out from you know m- my addiction and and everything and um, yeah, you know, it was a uh, it, it was a tough time. It definitely brought me back to those to those times when we were um, living together and. Um, in London, yeah, in in London, yeah, definitely, and and those, you know, I I can forget about how how hard it was, um, you you know, uh, seeing Enda like that, and you know, reminded me of how I didn't handle it very well, and um, you know, I I probably just buried my head in the sand, um, and while he was going through it, but um, yeah, it also just reminds me of how far he's come, and um, you know, just super proud of him.
0: Yeah does it remind you of how far you've come as well
1: yeah definitely hearing him talk about um you know how he sees me now and you know i can be very hard on myself like you know what i mean Uh, like you know i'm uh, to be honest i'm hard on myself more than i'm easy on myself definitely um and I still have a lot of anxiety and stuff like that. So to hear him talking about where I am now, it's it's great because it kind of reminds me of where I am now. And I just go, you know, actually, you know, he's right. You know, it's it's great to hear it from him.
0: Yeah. So tell us about your journey, because obviously it wasn't easy for Enda to watch his beloved brother go through all these ebbs and flows and highs and lows. So what was your perspective? Like, how did how did you get, what's your story? How did you get into it? Um, you know, what was it like for you and how are you doing now?
1: Okay, well, I suppose I'll start from, like, the beginning, I suppose. And, you know, as, as a child or as far back as I can remember, you know, I've always wanted to, to be a drummer. And I, I can't really remember ever wanting to do anything else. It was the, it was the first thing that really grabbed me. And uh, I'm sure there was, a, there was other things that grabbed me earlier on in life that I never followed through on. So that's probably why my parents made me do drum lessons for like a year before they got me a drum kit. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> that, that's just my personality, I suppose. But that, that one thing did, did stick. And um, I suppose, you know, look, looking back on, you know, my childhood in school, <clears throat> I was always I was always really quite an anxious, anxious uh, boy um, in school, especially. Um, I would have doubted myself, you know, a lot. Um, I would have thought I was never really that, you know, good enough, uh, smart enough. Um, now, that might not have come across as the way, <laughs> the way I behaved because, like, from what I was projecting out would have been, you know, uh, you know, pretty confident, I suppose, and jokey and playful. But, like, I always had this underlying anxiety. And um, uh, I found out much later in life uh, through therapy, that um, it was it was stemmed from uh, my father Um he, he was very sick when I was young he was sick most of his life uh, most of my life anyway and um, but he always thought he was going to die really young you know he had his first heart attack in his late 20s and then um, you know his dad died when he was really young and you know I, I got brought back in therapy to you know, being in bed and, um, you know, wait, a bit like what mention, mentioned, like, you know, waiting for him to come home and, you know, he'd be, you know, he'd be drinking and then he'd get home and he'd come up to us and, or me anyway, and, and he'd say, you know, oh, you know, one day I'm going to, I'm going to pass away. And, you know, my dad died when I was this age and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm sure he, he, he didn't mean it in a, in a way to, to make me anxious, but like, I suppose I carried that through, um, you know, most of my life. And uh, it was this feeling of impending doom, I suppose, that that was uh, coming. But yeah, I I, I never really uh, tuned into that until I I kind of sat down and talked to someone about it. Um, But that's that's the way I was anyway, through school. And, you know, everything I kind of did, I I was anxious about I always thought it was going to end or something terrible was going to happen. But drums and music, it was the first thing to ever like quench that anxiety in me, you know. And um, it was brilliant, you know. This is before I found alcohol and drugs and everything like that. So I, I was just totally uh, fascinated by drums. I couldn't stop thinking about them and music, and that's just what I wanted to do. Um, and I would do it as much as I possibly could. Like when I've when I got my drum kit, I would come home every day from school. I'd play the drums and all day every weekend. And, Annoying everyone in my house, probably <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning. I mean, my mother tells me now she's just like I don't even hear the drums when you play anymore because it's so <laughs> useful. But like I'm sure there was lot of them when it was uh, it was very disturbing. But <laughs>
0: it's yeah. funny that you say that you became obsessed with it because Enda became obsessed with biomed. So I guess once you got you guys have this drive to pick up on something and go for it. So I guess that runs in the family a little bit.
1: Yeah, d- d- definitely, definitely. Um, uh, we we definitely share that. Um, but like you know, it was for me, it was definitely the uh, feeling of you know, like playing the drums it made me feel like okay, I can relax. You know what I mean? Or it would take my mind off everything. My, mo- you know, it would take my mind off the, all the anxiety. And then you know, when I was around fourteen or fifteen. Um, I, I think I drank for the first time. And mm-hmm. when I drank for the first time, like, you know, I I know now that like, I never ever drank like a normal person ever, <laughs> like, you know, like even though I thought it was normal when I, when I started drinking, I was like, oh my God. Like, you know, again, I've arrived, you know what I mean? This is, this is perfect. This gets rid of all my anxiety. This, you know, this allows me to talk to girls or, you know, go out. And, liquid encouragement um, yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> my, my all, all my uh, impending doom and anxiety would just vanish and and that's what drums did for me but 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 drums are hard you know what I mean and, and music is hard drinking is easy and mm. um, so naturally for me anyway the the drink and the drugs started happening more and more and I started smoking a lot of weed and you know, I was I was always still really, really interested in music and drums, don't get me wrong, I mean, I still practice loads, and, you know, before long, I had a solid plan to, to go to um, this really, really good music college in London, and, you know, uh, I I did my audition, um, you know, months before my final exams in school, and I got in, and I was just like, well, you know, like, to be fair now, I, I didn't really, uh, you know, study or anything, you know, much anyway, so if it wasn't for that, I, I probably wouldn't have went to college, but um you you know like i was on skipping school every day smoking weed still playing the drums but not as much as i would have been before i started drinking um and that kind of you know carried on you know i i did my exams you know i I got an honor in music that was the only honor subject i did and everything else you know i got pretty low points you know what i mean and I think i got like 130 points it's not a lot like um but
0: I don't actually yeah. understand the pointing system because I'm from Canada right so in yeah well,
1: that's, that's really really low okay, <laughs> okay. Um, so you know but I didn't care because I got into this music college and then um, you know that was you know what I always wanted to do so I was I was happy enough and um I went off to, to London um and, you know, I was so, I mean, I was very, very anxious going to London. Um, again, I'm not sure if people knew that, but um, I, I really was. And uh, I lived on my own and um, I was getting to know loads of new people. But the more I kind of settled in, the more the more I felt at home really, really fast. Um, you know, where I come from is quite a small town in, in Ireland. and um, Castlebar? You know, all, yeah, Castlebar, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was always a bit different, you know what I mean? I had like a mohawk and painted my nails and there, there wasn't really that many people like that in Castle Bar. So um, when I got to London and there was just all manner of people, there was, there was you know, and, and a lot of people that were really interested in the same things I was interested in, especially in college. I mean, I remember when my dad brought me over for the the... The induction day, and then um, we were walking like outside of the college. And my dad wouldn't—he loves music, but he wouldn't have been massively into it—or he ignored sports. And we were walking outside the college, and all you could hear is like all these drummers, like like a hundred drummers, like you know, like playing in all the drum booths in the college. And he's walking by, and he just turned to me and went, oh, "This is amazing. This is like getting picked for play to play for like Tottenham Hotspur or something." Oh. <laughs> I was, like, that, that was like the—it was a really nice moment, and. Um,
0: but, yeah, I'm proud my, of you, well,
1: yeah, I think so. yeah, I hope so. and um, I, I settled in and then, um, you know, I got some friends and um you know the the drinking and the drugs <clears throat> it continued over, you know, I was always able to find the people who were you know smoking the weed or drinking or going out. I mean, you know, but it it wasn't really a a big problem at the time. it was it was just. It was just something that I did and, you know, it did the same thing for me that it always did. It, it lubricated my social life and, you know, um, helped me, um, you know, just be myself or what I thought was myself. You know, what I mean, I, that was one of the other thing, you know, I know I know now that other people go out and they drink to have a good time and, you know, loosen up. I always drank to feel normal. Like I always drank to feel like just regular. Yeah. Um, which, which I always thought was normal back then I thought that's what everyone did but like I know now that that's not true and mm-hmm. um, so that, that continued on and you know in hindsight looking back at it progression was definitely there you know from 15 all the way up to like around um, I'm about 19 or 20 now at this stage and you know things are getting worse but they're getting worse at a, at a slow pace and and you know it'd be hard to to spot it I suppose um, and then you know we ended came over with uh, with his his best friend and uh, we all got this house together and I had some of my friends and oh my god it was just like the best fun it was the most fun ever there was like eight of us in this really really lovely house in uh, West London and uh, we were all best friends we were all living together and it was just brilliant and. Um, and it was in that house that you know I I started into uh, into the se- second year of the degree, and you know I had had a bit of success. I I went on uh, I got picked to play in this band, and you know we went on tour, and I I took that opportunity to kind of drop out of college a little bit or defer, and um, you know because college was hard, you know college was academic, and you know I always struggled with that, so you know I it was I really was looking for an excuse to get out of there, and then. You know the drinking became a problem and um, from the very start from the first professional band i was in and you know i, I was called into it to the office by the manager and i was told that you know i'm not to be drinking anymore um, mm. for a gig. and for i was only like 19 or 20. i mean that, that's bad like when you have to be called in to, you know to be said that too so um i eventually got fired from that band um for for drinking too much um well, I would have said to, to anyone else like my parents or anyone like oh no no it just wasn't you know it wasn't the right time for me or you know blah, blah, blah,
0: yeah mm-hmm.
1: and then I went back to university and um, continued my studies and uh still living uh with with all the guys and um yeah there was, there was a good you know it was a couple of good years there in that house and um, where things were were good and um, and with the progression, the progression, the addiction was always right behind me. And it was just doing push ups and getting better. And it was progressing through my life. And, um, you know, I, I got another big job. Then I, um, I get a music video. And again, I took that opportunity to use it as an excuse to get out of my studies.
0: Was and that music say, video? Was that, uh, and I mentioned. Was oh, it, the,
1: it was it was Teo, Teo Cruz and and, yeah. kind of, you know, and, yeah. and I mean it, it was it was a big deal, but like it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a one off video shoot, but like I used that um, opportunity or excuse to get out of my studies again, and because yeah. I wasn't I wasn't doing well, I wasn't applying myself. I was smoking weed, I was drinking. But nobody, you know, I wasn't saying that, I wasn't taking responsibility for that. I was just saying, Okay, here's an opportunity now. I'm in this music video, I wanna go off and I wanna do my own thing and I wanna be a drummer But in reality my addiction was telling me you need more time so you can party and you can, you know, mm. do this because that's what it's all about. Which is which is you know, this is just uh, that's just addiction, you know, it's just me ma- it's just pushing things aside in my life to to make room and then... Um, I dropped out of college and, you know, I had convinced, you know, my mom to, you know, pay my rent and, you know, I was very good at that. And um, Yeah, that, that's when things kind of started to, to, to go badly and people in the house started to notice and progression started to get way worse. And this time, Andrew was, Andrew was pretty, pretty thick as well. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to go into too much about how he was feeling because, like, you know, I. You know, although I try and empathize as much as possible, it, it's really hard for me, to, you know. Um,
0: yeah, it's his story. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. Eventually, in the, you know, went home and I carried on what I was doing. And, um, you know, people started moving out of the house. Uh, rent started going missing. Uh, I started pocketing people's deposits and doing some really, really terrible things, you know, and just, you know, me at the time saying to myself, oh, yeah, I'll hold on to this deposit, of course. And then, you know, taking a little bit here, a little bit there. And then eventually it would be all gone. And then I'd have to lie. Um, so eventually people started moving out of the house and, and that house turned into what once was like a house filled full of laughter and friends and people helping each other out and working hard into just another. Con, you know what I mean, of mine, and um, you know, again, the, the progression of, it I, I, I didn't even realize where I was until I was in serious trouble in that house, and um, you know, I was, I knew that you know things were bad, and I was going to have to be honest with everyone, and you know, I eventually was, and the, the truth was, we all had to move out, and um, whoever was left, you know what I mean, there was new, there was new random people in, but like you know, there was a couple of my good friends left, and you know, that was. That was just uh you know such a betrayal and you know to them and the slap in the face and you know i remember they all moved out and we all did a big clean of the house and everyone left and i stayed because i was to meet the landlord and i remember the landlord came and i said you know here's the keys or whatever we'll uh we'll leave you know tomorrow or whatever and everyone left and then i invited a lot of people over i had a giant party Oh my God. And um, you know some really, really um, not not very nice people as well. Like just like you know, drug dealers and you know people who were only really interested in taking drugs. I mean, they weren't really my friends. and you know what I mean? Acquaintances, I suppose you call them. And then um, I had got a, uh, like a modelling contract in London, and they were putting me up. They they had. I told them what happened. They were like, "No problem. We'll give you an apartment." And I was like, "Oh, great." what I mean? Fixed. You know what I mean? It was. it was yeah. no real lesson learned. For me there, and um I remember the guy came to pick me up from my house, and I just left all these people in the house, and just closed the door behind me, and just like washed wow. my hands of it. Really? And uh, I thought that was it, you know, and um, but it wasn't this. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was a big lump of guilt and shame that, like, I fooled myself into thinking, like, oh, I can get over that. You know what I mean? They're only friends. They're only, you know, making friends and all that stuff. But like it was the start or probably not the start, but one of the big ones that I just threw on the pile, you know, of things inside me, like, you know, things that I've done that were terrible that I've never taken responsibility for. And it just built up and then I drank more. I moved into this house and um, it was, uh, it was carnage. It was, it was a load of uh, models living together, like male models and there was lots of cocaine and uh, partying and, you know, our rent was taken care of by the agency, and you know we go out a lot. I mean, the other guys were were great at their job. I mean, they were brilliant. You know what I mean? I wouldn't blame the modeling industry or the music industry for any of my uh, drug taking or, or partying. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that me But like, um, yeah, that 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 house was 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 really lonely. Um, and you know, I was I was really, uh, I, I suppose I was I was really down about you know what I'd done to my friends and the fact that they weren't in my yeah. life anymore, and um. So yeah, the, the drinking and the drug taking just got got worse from there, really, and I uh, became, you know, pretty pretty addicted to cocaine. Co- cocaine. At that stage, I was I was taking it most weekends. and-
0: Do you think you know, it was? I, sorry, was it part of like maybe the modeling culture or not at all? No, no. I mean, like there was plenty
1: of people in the in the in the modeling culture that took cocaine and still turned up for work and still went to the gym and still looked good and you know had fun on and again, you know, these are people that took cocaine. To have fun i always i took cocaine to feel normal again like you know what i mean like just like yeah. i drank like i used to drink so like it was it was it was more it was much different and um, because those those people are you know they, they never did the things i did or they've been ever as desperate as i was you know to, to to have the drugs or the drink because they didn't need them to feel normal they just needed them to you know have recreation I mean,
0: yeah, so I wouldn't blame
1: I wouldn't I wouldn't blame anyone anyone like that. I, you know, I, I not had the old
0: culture. You wouldn't blame. Yeah, no, the
1: that's one, no. That's always come back to me. You know what I mean? It's my responsibility to figure out why I don't feel normal. You know, on a day to day basis without drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Um. So you know that that went on for a bit and I eventually got uh, dropped from the agency, and um, just for you know. Messed up jobs, and you know, my body wasn't in the right shape. I was very unhealthy, you know, I just didn't look good, you know what I mean? And, and as well, I wasn't taking it seriously, you know, um, drugs were more important, and, and drinking was more important. Um, but you know, again, I, I was massively in denial, I would never have admitted that, you know what I mean? Dr- so, what did you
0: tell your important. family when you were let like, go from the agency?
1: I did every like I usually did. I I, bl- I blamed people. I, I blamed the the city. I blamed my friends that I was living with. I blamed the agency where you know, uh, you know, you know. I did everything I possibly could, and you know they they you know they loved me and 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 they you know they wanted to believe it. I suppose and um, and I was a pretty good liar. Um You know, definitely. So you know, yeah, I got fired from the agency, and then. Uh, I think that things things were were pretty bad then. You know, I was I was in a I was in a band at the time, um, a band called Romance, and and you know we were we had a bit of success and we got a deal and then we got dropped from the deal and that was hard. And you know we still kind of kept going and I was doing a lot of wedding gigs, like like I, I had all these like when I was living in that house then and and my friends from college, like I had all these really nice projects, like music projects and really good gigs and all this stuff, and then fast forward to this time in my life, like um, the gigs were more poor and uh, you know, they were sort of giving me a bit of cash, but like, I didn't really have much interest in them. And you know, I was always, I was always ringing up and asking for money for my dad, and you know, asking for money from my mom and my dad would have, would have been a, he, he would have given me a, a lot of money and I suppose, but uh, yeah, then- um,
0: Like they're always supporting you. No matter. Yeah, always
1: supporting me, definitely. Um, yes, yeah, so, i so lucky, really. Um, but then I think I think I moved to, to, to Woolwich then in London. I mean, over the space of the 10 years I lived in London, I think I must have lived in every borough of London. <laughs> <to take them. laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, again, just the progression had gotten really, really bad now. And uh, that continued on. Um, I was homeless briefly and, you know, sleep on people's couches, and, you know, just going out. Basically, my life was just going out with my friends and and partying as much as possible, and you know, not really trying to worry about anything. And there was a couple of war stories. There's, there's plenty of war stories. I'm not going to go into them because I think you get the picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, that eventually left me in this flat in Camden, where I was only in I was only in it for about a month, I'd say. And um,
0: how old were you at this time?
1: At this time, I would have been twenty six, I think. 26 okay. or 27 and i was living with these two lovely girls they were italian girls they were only about 19 or 20 maybe uh really lovely I just moved to london to you know work in bars and learn english and you know the usual thing and um, and enjoyed their partying as well but like like me and then then you know I, I was i was drinking so much at that stage i mean i, I was just i was waking up and drinking and you know and that, that went on for like a year you know what I mean like that waking up and drinking was a year yeah prior to, 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 to the end of my time in London just drinking constantly every hour I'd be drinking and um, I had a job selling stuff uh like direct selling on the street and there was good money in it and I was doing that um and then eventually like I started having seizures in the in the flat and then you know uh my my family was eventually contacted by these these girls who were far too young to be dealing with this kind of thing and um yeah my dad came over and, and got me and that was it I was out of London Um brought me home and
0: do you think that you know, was your low point in your life having those seizures
1: unfortunately uh, no
0: oh gosh
1: okay. uh, no no it definitely wasn't and <laughs> <No. laughs> uh, that that was that wasn't even a that wasn't even a wake-up call um uh, unfortunately um. Looking back on it, I mean, at the time it was it was like, oh my god. But like, you know, I just kept drinking and doing drugs and, and put it on the pile with all the other things that I was, you know, so ashamed of.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, you know, I came back to Castlebar then, and you know, even though like my parents and, and, and uh, Jerry knew that I had gotten bad with drinking drugs, I mean, they all I was, there was so much distance between us that you know I could hide it. Still a good bit of it. Mm-hmm. But when I got back to Castlebar and I was living there. And still carried on the way I was it was so obvious to, to everyone how bad it was and then you know there was no hiding it then because it's such a small town and it, like it wasn't long before I was getting into trouble in in the town and you know a town like that and um, like just gets around so fast and the, the word or any incident at all really so there was a lot of talk of would you go into, you know, would you go into treatment, you know, would you do this and you know, I fought it for a bit and something bad happened then in, in Castlebar, I think I, I, I started to fight got badly, beaten up in one oh, night and um, uh, then I said Enda okay. wasn't
0: there, right? Enda wasn't in Castlebar at that time, he was in Galway?
1: Um no I think I think Ender was no he was in Castlebar at that time. He was he was living with my mum. Um and this was before I went into treatment. So and it oh, okay. was he was home. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, and you know, it, pff, the, the, the most people couldn't be around me at that time. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was their fucking problem. Sorry for squirt. <laughs> That's okay, it's fine. That was their problem, you know what I mean? Like i'm grand I mean that that was my attitude, a very smug attitude and to have, but that was it. And then you know, I my, my back was against the wall then, you know, after that incident in, in Castlebar. And I did kind of want like at this point, I I knew I was I was here in Castlebar, I was stuck, I was drinking loads, I was doing cocaine loads, my money was running out. You know, uh, I owed, you know, a few of my friends in Castlebar money at this stage as well. and I was like Phew i don't want this you know what i mean like oh, i actually don't want this you know so i said yeah I said let's let's do it you know i'll, I'll uh i'll go in and you know my dad brought me down for the um for the for the, uh, the whatever the interview or whatever and you know i was honest you know i was I was, I was really honest i think well I was, I was more honest than i'd ever been in my life with, with her and she was just like you need to be in here so and so i went in and uh you know it was my first taste of recovery was this uh, place in in the west of ireland called hope house and then um, i went in there and it was a it was a month-long program and um, you know i was terrified going in but i needed to be because it was really um suppose, uh, well, the best word for it is n- n- nurturing and you know you know, yeah, I was I was off to the drink and I was dry, but like there was an awful lot of, you know, oh, aren't you a great fella for coming in here and, you know, like, well done and all this stuff. And, you know, I liked that. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I did it. I learned a lot. I learned what I a few things that I had to do and, you know, meetings and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I came out and... Um, you know and he was going through his 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 own stuff at the time and um i I got I was sober for seven months um out of the the house and uh, you know um it was really, really hard Um, I remember it being so hard to stay sober like I was living with my dad and he enjoyed a drink and mm. you know I was resentful against him and you know I, I felt a bit of resentment from from other people as well from, from my dad maybe a little bit as well because like it was like now that I'd stopped drinking like you know I probably did have a bit of holier than thou syndrome going on as well <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so I'm sure it was annoying and um, a lot of the time but um I did feel like you know I I, I was I was pretty alone again you know and mm-hmm. even though I had the meetings and all that stuff so I ended up meeting this girl in uh in the meetings after you know a couple of months of sobriety or yeah I was sober a good while I was sober about three or four months and uh, I met her and we became friends and uh, she started driving me to meetings and stuff like that which I which I needed and you know um, we started we were going to so many meetings and but there there was like uh, it was growing into something more than friendship and um, I mean I'm so anxious about that as well because like my whole life I'd always been drunk or been on drugs whenever I like hooked up with someone or like you know even went on a date or anything Um, and like it was totally new to me and i was terrified i mean i was terrified i mean she was like we 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 obviously liked each other for so long but like the the whole intimacy thing for me that just scared the crap out of me like without drinking drugs so like i we went on for for months with, with nothing happening and then I suppose uh, after about six months or so, I kind of had it in the back of my mind that you know maybe one day again I could just do some drugs or drink a bit or have one night you know of fun and then go back to recovery. Yeah. Um, so after seven months, it um, was uh, the last weekend in in May that year, and um, me me and this girl were um, were together and and we we talked about hooking up and you know. There was just no way I could do it without drinking. I, I can, you know, we convinced each other. I and mean, we were both ready to relapse anyway, and then we ended up, we ended up relapsing and then um, getting together. And yeah, it was. I mean, it was, uh, it was. It was carnage. I mean, you know, it really was. Um, I fully intended to just drink, you know, one night and then go back to recovery and not say anything, and you know, it'd all be fine. Um, but you know that's just not how it works. and I know that now. Um, but yeah. So I, I drank, and after it didn't take long. I think it took about four or five days before you know the word got out. And I, I think I called up my best friend when I was high on cocaine, and uh, I told him what happened. And he, you know, he was so worried about me because I was really down that I'd relapsed. You know, I felt so terrible about you know all the hard work I'd put in. Like you know, it was all wasted. So. Um, I had some pretty dark thoughts, and and he he contacted my dad straight away, and and um, doing the a showdown outside her house, and uh, you know, but I wasn't ready. You know, I, I I had to start lying then. You know, I had to really start lying because I I, I was like, there's no way I can go go over it right now. I mean, I'm too, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I I I know now that like, you never pick up from where you leave off. Like when when you go back drinking, you pick up from a way way deeper darker place again. Like I always thought that you know, oh, I've got seven months of recovery. I'm kind of seven months healed. <laughs> like, but that's just not how it works at all. Like you you're just um,
0: to go back to you square got, one.
1: Yeah, even behind square one, because you've got all this recovery in your head. You've got all these answers, and you've got all the truth in your head. And now you can't drink with the drinkers, and you can't hang out with the sober people either, because um. You're neither, yeah. so I was drinking alone with her, and that codependency uh, became stronger than any drug I've ever taken. Um, so me and this uh, girl, we, we were inseparable, and uh, I was lying um, and saying I was sober, and I was you know freezing my urine and uh, you know like using it to, to fake drug tests and uh, doing some some shady stuff uh, to just to hide it. Um and I also then I got hooked on because the girl I was with, she she was she was her problem was always like uh opiates and heroin and, and stuff like that. So it didn't take long uh until I was uh addicted to to opiates then and when I've tried them I was like this is, this is this is the best. Um, you know, I thought that I could hide it really easily because it's just tablets and and you know Whatever, and you know, I don't stink a drink, and you know, I'm not wired from the like the cocaine, so people won't notice, and 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 they didn't for a long time. Can and I ask
0: you, um, how did it make you feel? Did it make you feel numb?
1: It just it it literally made me feel like I didn't give a shit about anything, like that nothing bothered me, like even the the deepest, the most shameful things that i have done that even alcohol and drugs couldn't properly quench. Uh, that did and um, yeah i got i got really hooked on that and um, this this thing with with that girl i went on for about a year and a half after relapsing and just being caught lying and uh you know failing change not changing and uh the end of moved off to um Canada, i think towards the end of that i remember i had my 30th birthday he wasn't there but like i was like, mess my 30th birthday it was just a small dinner with my family and they, they had to tell my friend who was the manager of the restaurant like not to serve any alcohol to us and all this stuff it was just mortifying stuff um, and for for me and for my family like not just for me um but uh it came to a head that whole and um, relapse that year and a half long relapse and um, came to a big head Uh and I, I was on St. Stephen's night, and I was driving a car, like no license, no insurance. It was actually ended old car. And then, um, he'd sold it to my girlfriend at the time. And then um, on St. Stephen's night, I was out drinking. And you know, I remember someone handed me 50 euro and was like, you know, please don't drive home. Here's 50 euro, get yourself a taxi. And I just spent it on drinking. And then um, I got into the car and I was driving to where we were staying, and uh, you know she was there in the passenger seat, and I was like, you know just driving like a lunatic on these country roads, and I just crashed straight into a wall and um I was luckily, no one was hurt and um, like she was fine i was I was okay uh, the car was was written off, but like there was no one else involved in the accident, and we managed to get the car off the road and up to a car park and Dumped it there, abandoned it, and uh, went into the place we were staying and carried on, you know, doing what we were doing. And the guards came to the door the next day with my dad and my best friend Daniel, and you know, they they thought I was, you know, they thought I was injured somewhere or something. And I'll never forget actually. My dad told me this story. He was in his room, he was asleep, and he had this nightmare where his window in his room, when you look out of it, you can see down to the bottom of the apartment complex and you can see was coming in the front doors and he had this dream that he got up and he looked out the window uh, as the doorbell rang and the guards were there and they were there to tell him that i was dead that was his dream and then he was woken up by the doorbell and he looked out and the guards were downstairs the very same as his dream but they were there to tell him that the car had been found you know matched up and i wasn't in it and i was okay
0: but so his like, heart must have sank to his stomach having that dream and then actually living it.
1: Yeah, I know it was it was it was really really uh, really bizarre. And um, but like you know, I'm sure that I, my my all my family members' hearts were in their stomach. You know that year and a half, especially. So um, I I then after that I contacted Tabor House, which is a place here in uh, where I live at the moment in need, and uh, they call it Secondary Treatment Centre and. It's, uh, it's usually a four-month program, and um, I contacted them. Now, they had offered to take me after uh, Hope House, you know, and said that I needed secondary treatment, but I, I told them I didn't, and, you know, I never went. So I called up the the, the place, and I spoke to Keith, uh, the the manager, and uh, just like, like a therapist, and um, he was like, you know, oh, I told you, you needed this place and you know like yeah. <laughs> he, he was like yeah he, he, to they, they, they agreed. Uh, I wouldn't have to go back into the month long one that they would just let me straight into the secondary one because you know I'd already um, get in contact with them you know once beforehand. So I got in there and let me tell you, that place is a lot different than the place I was in in the West of Ireland. Uh, you know, place in the West of Ireland was a hotel in comparison. Um, you know, there was no maids. There was no, you know, fresh bed sheets put on for you. There was, there was three or four people in a room, uh you know, there was people in there that were very different from me. and um, I suppose, and you know, I went in there, and I and I wasn't ready either. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I ch- I kept looking around the place and going, oh, everyone's so different to me here. You know what I mean? I kept mm. seeing people for their differences only instead of zoning into that really really important thing that we share which is like our addiction and our thinking which is the real you know that's the helpful thing you know what i mean it doesn't matter where someone comes from or or what kind of life they've had the point is that you share that this, you know these thoughts and, and and these you know this addiction is it's just the same you can relate on such a deep level if you try you know and then um, i wasn't ready i had a real smoke attitude in there in the first month and I really, really wanted to leave. And um, then we went on this day out to uh, climb this mountain um, in Meath. And uh, on on this, uh, we had our phones. We were allowed our phones that day, I remember. Uh, so um, I got my phone back and I was on the phone. I was still seeing this girl, you know, like, you know, I, we still kept our relationship going. So I was calling her, I, like, I want to get out of here. You know, you've got to come get me. You know what I mean? It's, you know, I don't want to be here. They're driving me crazy. And she was like, no, 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 i you know what I mean? whatever and then i hung up the phone and um, then the phone rang again and i got a phone call to see my dad had passed away and uh like my, my dad and me were, were really close um and you know he he out of everyone in the fa- in the family i suppose i felt like he kind of understood um the the, the drinking and the, and the addiction a bit better than than the others like not saying that he condoned it in any way he wanted recovery for me definitely but You know, he. I think he kind of got that there's nothing that he could say or do or not do, uh, you know, to make me drink or not not drink. It was only going to be me who was going to be able to do that. So he would point his finger at me, you know, know, a lot. Let's forget. He wouldn't get angry or he wouldn't hold on to the resentment. So, you know, when I lost him, I found out that I lost him. You know, I was absolutely devastated. Obviously, I was devastated. Um, uh, And but I have to be honest, like. And this is something that um, you know it, it, it gives me great shame even now, but I also have to be honest about this. When I got that phone call, yes, the first thought was devastation, but my second thought very quickly afterwards was, "I can drink." And mm. um, you know, I'm going to be able to drink now. you know mm. I, can, I can get out of here and I can drink." And that, 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 was, that thought came you know just as quick as uh, I can get rid of this. you know I can get rid of this feeling how I've been feeling the last month I can get rid of it all. And I can go drinking, and I did. Um, I convinced, you know, uh, my girlfriend at the time to come and get me, and um, she picked me up because I knew I could, I could, you know, convince her to to let me, you know, drink. Um, and now she, you know, it was hard. Um, she was she sober at this time? Um, I think, I think so, but she was definitely determined not to let me drink. I mean, she was very determined, and she had been called into the to centre before and talk to him private, you know what I mean, and told, you know, you need to just drive him home like but like I ended up just like jumping out of a moving car and centre of town here in Navin, like I didn't even make it out of town. Um, and I just got to a pub as fast as I could like, oh, and I just drank instantly and just drank whiskey and beer and whatever the hell I could think of to get me drunk as quickly as possible. And then I went out to her and she was in tears and I was just like, Oh it's done now look i have drank, you know, that's it. Like, you know, you don't have to, you know, protest anymore and and that was it then, um, for four weeks. I was not present for any of my family um, during this difficult time. Um, one of the first things I did um, when I went home was I went straight into the bank and into my dad's business account and took out, I think, 4,000 euro, because um, it was in my name, the, the account. I mean, that was before I'd even, even met my, my mother and, and my brothers or anyone. And, you know, like, yeah, it was, for, it was for drugs and it was for drink. Like, there, there's no excuse to, for, for doing that. It's just so selfish. And, you know, I couldn't see past my own grief. And, and um, you know, it's just that, that selfish, smug attitude that I just hadn't lost at all. And it was, it was, it was awful. And, um, you know, I, 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 um, I went up and I, I for, one for one, for a better word, squatted in my dad's apartment and just took drugs and drank um, for weeks. week. Uh, you know, I went to the, the funeral and, you know, the removal, but like, I wasn't really there. You know, I wasn't present, I wasn't helpful. Um, you know, I tried to stay away from everybody as much as possible, but like, you know, that was impossible and, you know, we I did end up having, you know, arguments and, uh, you know, things I really, really regret saying. Um, yeah, my... Well, Sorry,
0: so wh- what was your... Like when you were at that bank or the ATM or whatever, and taking out that money, do you recall what was going through your head? Like, or you're just yeah. like numbing it so that you can just do what you needed to do to feed that or to lower that sorrow, kind of.
1: What was going through my head was, I'm entitled to a third of this money that's in this account. That was that was the thing that I was saying to myself. Um, I'm entitled to this mine. Um, you know. Uh, I'm not taking it all, you know what I mean. I'm taking a little bit, and I'm going to help out with things. I'm going to help out with things for the funeral. I'm going to help out with this and that. And, so you're you know, literally
0: and, just convincing yourself, like this yeah. is the right thing to do. And yeah, was, but I mean,
1: I was also thinking as well. I'm going to spend a little bit of this on, uh, you know, uh, drinking and and taking drugs and to try and get through this difficult time. But like deep down, I knew, I I knew this money was going to disappear. Um, you know, I did, and. Uh, I suppose I was just convincing myself of, of all those reasons in preparation for, you know, the uh, inevitable, uh, having to, you know, having to convince someone else, I suppose. Um, but like, um, yeah, so uh, that was it. Like I spent four weeks in that house. I was supposed to go back into the treatment centre after four days. It was only a four-day leave, you know, to go to the funeral and do all that. And, you know, there was no way. I was ringing up my counsellor, Keith, and I was crying on the phone, and I was drunk, and. On drugs and um you know i had a i i started taking opiates again and like you know uh like after like three or four days of taking opiates continuously you're you're right back you know in you know severely addicted and this is like four weeks of it and i knew that i was going to have to come off those again and i really really didn't want to do that And anyway my, my mother went to canada my brothers were gone you know i was looking for an argument and i wasn't getting any Uh, nobody was biting you know what i mean i was looking for sympathy no one was giving it to me you know and and although now i know that it was very very hard for my mother and my brothers not to give me sympathy it was the right thing to do they were they were also talking to keith in tabor house and and he was the one saying you have to disconnect with love now you have to disconnect with love and this is the only way and thank god for for my family and for keith and for being so strong because at the time i mean i thought they were being cruel and mean and you know, I hated them but looking back now obviously it was it was really, really difficult for them. So Yeah, it was you know, really I difficult for
0: like, Enda I've, Yeah. Yeah, when we talked about it. Definitely.
1: Yeah. I mean it must have been just horrendous, horrendous. And you know, to not react even in a in an angry way or, or any way. They couldn't react. And you know, that was awful. So I ran out of money and spent all the money and um, you know, I was I was starting to you know, starting to realize that I was on my own here and, you know, you know, I couldn't keep doing this and I needed to, like, I didn't have my dad anymore either. Like, my dad was the one that I could just be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, like, you know, I won't you know, do it again and and he would always, you know, be there for me that way and uh, probably not the most helpful, but he, I don't think he could help it and, you know, I, I think, you know, he would, couldn't help himself um, well, and
0: okay he loved you but well, I, I, love I understand you. he loved you so much. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, you know, I know it's 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 hard to say that he was enabling me, but like, you know, I suppose it did have an enabling effect, definitely. So then yeah, I was I was out of options. I went back to Sabre House and uh I sat there and I like, you know, I need to do this, you know, I really need to do this and um something just Something just clicked um, after a couple of weeks, I think it was, in, in the house. I mean, I went through withdrawals in the first week and it was horrible. And I always wanted to leave, obviously. But, like, after the, a while, like, I just started really listening to, to, to what the, the counselors were saying to me. And, and, you know, they were saying, look, that's it. Your family don't want anything to do with you. You know what I mean? That's it. And that was what they had to say. And that's what everyone had to do in order to kind of get me to think, what the hell am I going to do here? So, is so, that
0: the low point?
1: Um, I would say, yeah. I mean that's 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 the that's starting from again from, from bottom, but that's definitely starting from bottom. So yeah, those those first week that first week or two in, in the treatment centre were were the low lowest of the low. Yeah. You know, people had found out about the money and, you know, I thinking about the horrible things I said and, you know, squatting in my dad's apartment and, you know, not being there for my family. I mean, definitely the low point. Uh, hundred percent. Um, but you know, when I was there I was I was, I was left with, you know, thinking that I had nobody and I will never have anybody again or potentially couldn't, you know. And, and then uh, it's like, I just said, you know, fuck it. I was like, I'm just going to do everything that they ask me to do in here. And I'm not even going to question it. I mean, I'm just going to completely put myself aside. And if, if anything, if something seems like something I don't want to do, I'm going to do it more, you know, because I'm wrong. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I haven't known what I've been doing for the majority of my life. You know what I mean? So I need to listen to other people. And and once I had that surrender, and they talk about surrender and recovery a lot, and I never really understood what it meant. But like I just surrendered completely to to the to the house that I was in. I was like, This is my higher power. I just have to follow this and everything will be okay. And my anxiety was just quenched by that thought. And I just kept reminding myself of that. And I kept like, even though I didn't believe in God or, or anything, I still prayed because they told me to pray. And I was like, you know, even in my head, I was like, what the hell are you doing this for? You know, you don't believe in God, God's not real. It's like, it doesn't matter. They told me to, I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to pray. And it's, it, it was things like that, like, like putting myself well aside for, for tasks every day. You know, they'd give me an extra chore and I wouldn't go, why you give me an extra chore? to do it. And it was like swallowing and humbling and, and just little things that just kept adding up and, um, and then I was able to really see that, like, if I can just you know do that every day a little bit, you know what I mean? my 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 faith in my faith in the universe or higher power, or God or whatever you want to call it, will always get rid of my anxiety if I really think about it. And you know i I just did that. And um, you know i've I've had hard days. I stayed in the treatment center for five months instead of four. They told me to move here to Navon. I moved to Navon. Uh, they told me that you know 2% of people make it through two years um, or, or finish their aftercare, 2%. But 75% of that 2% takes over forever. So I did it. I did two years of aftercare every single Friday night. And even in the pandemic, I was on Zoom. I did it like, you know, a lot of people drop out. And that doesn't mean that they relapse or whatever, but unfortunately, a lot of them do. And um, so I stuck with it, you know. And some things were pain in the ass, but I stuck with them. I just did everything that they asked me to do, and you know, here I am. I'm like three years and two months sober now, and um, like, and it's just amazing. You know, yeah. I mean, I I love helping people if I can, or you know, going to meetings. And I've got a career now when I'm in a band, and you know everything has taken a lot longer than I thought it would but like you know, it's still it's still all really really good I'm just so grateful you know for for everything you know I'm grateful for this podcast you know, to sit here and talk to you about it you know like it, keeps, it gives me so much so you know like it, it's incredibly self-serving and so I really am really grateful um for it but yeah that's that's my story and I'll leave it
0: um so, are you back to modeling? Are you back? You said you were in a band. So, when you're get now that you have your footing and stuff, do you get that those temptations at all? And how do you so, halt yourself if you have those temptations? So, yeah, I mean,
1: I, I, as I said, like things take a lot have taken a lot longer than I thought. But like, I suppose I, I owe an awful lot to the pandemic. You know, I know it was a terrible time, and, and a lot of people were sick and. You know, it was bad for business and stuff like that. But I really felt like the world went on pause, and I could like catch up. And um, it really, like it really, you know, there was a lot of benefits to it for me. And um, you know, I I did a lot of things. I lived with my mother for six months in the first lockdown, and we, you know, we really needed that. So, like looking back on it, like we kind of killed each other a few times, but like we still, <laughs> um, we, we still really needed it, and it brought us closer together. So uh, now. Like, yeah, I mean, I've started to go out to pubs and stuff now and, you know, dating and I've had a few kind of short relationships, but, you know, it's definitely, you know, it's it's all, the progression is there, it's it's happening, you know, but it's just like, you know, the bad progression, you know, it's it's hard to really spot where you are until you kind of have things like this and you sit down and talk and you kind of go, oh, I'm here. But like, um, yeah, it, it can be, it can be tricky. I don't get temptations to drink and do drugs because like there's no like I'm really lucky, like ever since that clicked with me in, in the house, I've never ever after that point thought drinking drugs can help this feeling or drinking drugs can, can help this situation. You know, I'd much more I'd be much more likely to kind of leave myself in an unhappy place. I suppose that would be my drugs and drink and that's not okay either. So I would have to like snap out of it, go to a meeting. Uh, go exercise or, or do things I've got all the tools you know what I mean you call my mom you know call my brothers you know pick up the phone you know try and help someone you know instead of you know it's just not an option the drinking drugs and then you know that was it I mean a big, another big thing that I did that I didn't think would help me. It just kind of happened I went on this tv show here in, in Ireland called First Dates and <laughs> yeah and that was amazing because I, I was able to, to tell my story and then you know, because I was anxious about like telling people that I was an alcoholic. You know, that was a big part of it. And in the pandemic, I didn't really have that—that it didn't have to tell people because no one was really out or around. So, um, look, like that was such a good tool because, like, I just kind of told the whole country that I was an alcoholic in one go, and then like I just didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> so, um, that that really helped me a lot. And uh, yeah, yeah, that, it's that freeing. was freeing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: yeah it should great yeah um, do you yeah. think like no, admitting it and hearing you say it was just like it was like a relief almost like oh my gosh like <laughs> the whole it world know well, the whole ireland knows and stuff yeah
1: it, it's definitely it's definitely good and um, like you know people have their anonymity in recovery and i totally understand and respect that it's just not what works for me uh, you know I, I've i kind of like I can't really keep anything to myself and I've always been like that like tell everyone what happened to me like, even if something's really embarrassing like I have to tell someone that I won't feel embarrassed about it or something
0: I and totally so, get that look at me I started a podcast about it
1: <laughs> <laughs> but like it has had some I mean there has been times when it hasn't always gone you know the way I'd like to be. like you know I, I've been in I've I've met two girls in the last three years that have like you know, things have been going, or my things have been going really well, but like, you know, it had come to an end because they just cannot get their head around the fact that I was an alcoholic. And, you know, to do with, I don't know, Ireland, especially, there's quite a lot of guilt and shame, I think, around it still. And, you know, that was a shock. But, like, you know, I had to experience that as well as the good things, just to know that, you know, even though you're honest and you're open about it, you know, some people aren't going to be okay with it. And, you know, that's, that's their problem and some of yours. And, you know what other people think of me is
0: just reading on my business. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So you said you were back. You're doing a band. Enda had mentioned that you were back working. Your he saw you on a poster, um, like in Dublin <laughs> or something. Did you? Know, yeah, that was so crazy. <laughs> did you? Why are you hesitant to tell your family and friends that you're back at modeling and?
1: I didn't know that poster was even up there. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> was, I was doing this work for, for the, the clothing. I told them that I was back doing a bit of modeling, but it was just a bit e-commerce modeling. Like and um, I didn't realize that they were um, that they were doing that. And uh, there's another place in 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 Blanchard Town, it's just down the road from me here. It's the same store, but like it has like the one of their balls in the brand new shop. It's just me, like a giant picture of me. And I've been in the gym before and these guys, like these big, muscly guys that come to me and they're just like, and I'm like, oh God, what does this guy want? to be like, i seen you in this kind And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then so, so when I saw that, um, I think he, he was the second person to say it to me. But um, yeah, I got a, another post on an Instagram from a friend of mine in Castlevara that I knew from school. And he was like, you know, spotted. I spotted your hair. Like, I was like, amazing. But um yeah I never even got to see it like um, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> gone now.
0: so what does that uh, make yeah, you feel like when someone see, you know messages you you're on a billboard or you're on a poster you're massive
1: you know what it makes me it makes me think that you know all those things that I, that I really wanted when I was when I was drinking and taking drugs uh that I never thought I was good enough for because I was drinking and taking drugs I was, I was so you know toxic in my own head and and thinking, you know, drinking drugs is the right thing and I like, can survive on that. And I'm never any really good, I'm never gonna be able to do this. And then I had that feeling again in recovery like, you know, I'm never gonna be able to do this, never gonna be able to do that. And then, you know, I can, you know, I'm, I've been more successful, like, you know, in, in modeling here in, in Dublin than I ever was in, in London. Like, and like, I'm not thinking of it as like a career or anything, but it's just nice to know that, like, you know, just recovery for me could made me feel at the start like you know okay this is it now you know it's 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 never going to be any fun again you know what I mean but like you know I'm sober and I feel great but you know I'm never going to be any crack and never going to do this but you can. you can do anything you want the only thing I can't do is drink
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: <okay. laughs> and uh, um, so yeah it's good
0: yeah and you said you're in a band
1: hmm I'm in a band called Scattered Ashes and um, I joined the band in. January and yeah so nerve-wracking and um, but like another really good thing to do and um, I went and did an audition took a week off work and went home and played drums for a week solid trying to learn their set. and again I never thought I'd, I'd get the job like um, it, you know I just thought this would be good good practice you know like a job just go and do it you know what I mean kind of thing and you know I did it and they uh, offered me the job in the room and I got it and uh, we've been playing some gigs I've been in the recording studio and they a really new band and you know we're already on the radio uh, uh base and we just played a big festival in in ireland called c session there like a couple of weeks ago and um it's good we're going back in studio this this month and um, yeah yeah just feels great they're really nice guys as well i mean it's it's really what i needed like i was a little, it, it can be a little bit lonely as i said being in recovery because you know you can't really go out and, and some people are a bit kind of funny or you, they don't want to drink and that kind of thing. So it can be hard to make friends. I didn't. I think it can be really hard to make friends as an adult anyway. Like, you know, it's, it's a bit like that movie, I Love You Man. You know, when you start <laughs> trying to make friends. Like, that's what I feel like. Sometimes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. Um, but like, meeting these guys in the band. Like, they're so lovely and they're so funny. Like, you know, like, and clever. Like, I, I mean, funny things happen to me and I tell people about it and people laugh and, you know, that's great. But the big guys are like, have me in stitches like all the time like they're so
0: funny. Like good crack?
1: Yeah really good crack
0: yeah it's great. <laughs> no I totally get like you know making friends like in that movie didn't you go like mandates or something like that? Yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so um, I haven't had to do that yet. <laughs> um when are you going to come visit Enda here in Canada?
1: Oh, uh, hopefully, really, really soon. I mean, I really, really need to get over and visit them. Um, I started a new a new job um in February, and I've just been kind of settling into that. Um, like everyone else, starting a new job is you know I'm just the same as everyone else in that regard. It's just you know can be quite stressful, I suppose. But um, I'm settled in now. So, I'm um, just coming back for Christmas. So i probably. I'll see, I'll see how it goes. Uh, Maybe after Christmas, maybe before Christmas, depending, I'm not sure yet.
0: Yeah, I think the one thing I think is really healing in Canada or where we're living, Vancouver, is that you're able to go out in nature and like whenever you want. It's like, you know, you can go off to a hike in less than 30 minutes and it's this, it's beautiful. And I think nature is very healing. And I like when you said you guys um, in one of your, the houses that you stayed at, you were on a hike. And I think that's very important to get out there. And, and I, I, know Enda and I also talked about, um, getting exercise and having a routine. So is that what your days are like now kind of having more of a routine here and there? Yeah.
1: Definitely. I mean, yeah, I'd be, I'd be lost without the gym and, uh, what that does for me. Um, you know, I, I got, re, I got like, I got re, I got into running in the pandemic and it kind of just went from there. And, um, you know i started getting back exercising and then like the modeling happened then and then you know i kept it up but not, not not just for aesthetics just the way it makes me feel more than anything else like just um like i it's just a really good way to clear my head but like getting out in nature and stuff like um is really important putting the phone down i can be terrible for the phone like mm-hmm. dating apps or you know just <laughs> it's really, like i have to be honest like just like just just on it all the time like and i'm not saying like like loads of results or anything from these apps i'm just on it like constantly it's like it's definitely not good for me and <laughs> um, so yeah more nature more playing music and things like that definitely um, is good for me and even the gym can be a bit isolated i think i think mm-hmm. that can be bad too mm-hmm. but um yeah there's, there's plenty of stuff around here in needs i mean it's beautiful it's like uh you know that movie braveheart yeah well, they filmed it just down the road, like the castle here. There's like the big oh. castle in the So, like, you can go around and walk around and a nice day. Oh,
0: so what advice would you give any recovering addicts or anyone who's suffering with addiction?
1: Any anyone who's suffering with addiction, um, you know, there's never going to be a, a good time to. Say, I need help. There's never going to be a time when you're going to feel like you can say that or it's not going to be hard. Um, it is, you know, for me, the hardest thing was to admit I needed help and that I had a problem because once I did that, then never unsay that. And, um, but it was the best thing I ever did in my life. A- a- anyone who's going through recovery, um, in, in early recovery, uh, obviously stick with it. And um, if something feels like you're doing the wrong thing and it's a waste of your time, it probably is the right thing. Um, as well as if something seems hard, it's definitely the right thing. The hard thing is always the right thing. Um, and yeah, do what, do the suggested thing. Do the suggested things. thing. Um, whatever is suggested to you, do it because I don't know what worked for me. Like, you know what I mean? I was given a whole bunch of suggested things. I'm not sure which one of them worked, but I just did them all so that, you know, one of them has to work. So, um, yeah, do do what do what you're told. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've heard that since like I was six years old.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> and help others as well. Help others if you're if you're going to meet and you're doing do service. You know, turn up early, put out the chairs. Uh, you know, volunteer when you're there long enough. Volunteer to be a secretary or get involved.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. And one last question, Killian. In one or two words, who's Killian now?
1: Honest, open, and willing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm gonna cry again. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for joining us. This has been really informative. And, you know, you and I just met, and I'm I'm rooting for you, and it's so (laughs) great. And you've been sober, what, three years, you said?
1: Three three years. It was it was May May fifteenth that I got sober. So three years and
0: a month. A month, yeah, a
1: month
0: a and somewhere. Uh, well, great for you. Honestly, that's amazing. And I know when talking to Enda, how proud he is of you, and it brings a light to his face, which I, I love. <laughs> you know, especially being <laughs> his friend and all. So, thank you for joining us and sharing your story. Honestly, um, there's so much. I admire you for admitting what you've gone through and it's very brave to be coming onto something public, which I know you've done a few of these. And so, and it's yeah, admirable and inspiring to be honest. And I know a few people who are going through addiction right now and I help as much as I can, but I'm hoping that your interview helps them more than what I could give because I've never been in in that situation. I think my, most I've been addicted to is my food. <laughs> and so <laughs> um and so yeah, so thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're
1: welcome. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Welcome to this week's reflection section. I just want to thank Killian for getting onto this podcast and being vulnerable with us and uh, sharing his story. Uh, And like he said in the interview, there's some type of healing process as you share your story and people actually relate to it. I can't relate to the addiction of alcohol or any drugs or whatsoever, but I can relate to being manipulative. And that's hard for me to admit. This happened about 20 years ago. I was a pathological liar. I lied about everything. I lied to be a victim to people's eyes because that's where I felt loved. And that's what I felt for people cared about me. And so I was able to learn how to manipulate people to feel loved. And I learned that actually, this is terrible, but I learned that from my biological father who kind of lied his way through life and um, got his way. And so I learned that. And did it make me proud of myself? Absolutely not. And so I kind of related to that aspect of Killian when he was talking about how he manipulated both his parents into getting what he wanted and to feed his addiction. My addiction at that time, 20 years ago, was to feel loved. Right. And it wasn't alcohol, but I needed to feel like people were there around me. And um, it's not exactly what Killian was going through, but there are definitely similarities of needing that fix, I guess, in a way. Um, So there might be aspects of Killian's story that you may not relate to, but then there might be some other aspects that you do relate to. Maybe such um, liquid encouragement. I know a lot of people who use alcohol or drugs to have, build courage in themselves to be able to, I don't know, for example, talk to a woman, talk to a man, you know? And so I guess it's, Do we really need liquid encouragement if we're confident in ourselves, if we are not afraid of rejection or anything like that, right? So you may relate to that. You may not relate to that. I don't know. So the one thing that I do know is that we never know what people are going through. And so just be kind to everyone around you. Because they could be fighting an addiction, they could be fighting an inner mental health battle that we may not understand. But we can empathize, empathize, and be compassionate, because everyone's gone through shit in their life, and everyone's has struggles. We're all human. There is no perfect human being out there without any issues without any mental issues we all have some degree of mental issues some degree of quote-unquote addiction and so yeah so thanks Killian for opening up and sharing your story and you know you know finding that love within yourself and and the courage and strength to make those changes in your life I don't fully understand what Killian is going through or anyone who's an addict, but I do see, and he talks about his changes in his life. And Enda talks about the changes that he's seen Killian go through. And when it comes to recovery, there's so much that changes in someone's life. Um, uh, For instance, their, you know, mental health and, We talked about how important physical health is, like hiking and getting out there and clearing your mind and spiritual health and um, I guess financial health because he's now working and he's uh, also rebuilding relationships with his parents, so he's changing his career capabilities, but that's not all I got from Killian's interview. There was so much more that I read into, um, of how he's recovered, like he's got so much life purpose and meaning now in his life. He shares his story as a purpose to help people. And that's the meaning of him being on this and, you know, talking about it on first dates, Ireland, as well as that he, you know, he, his ability to share people can relate to and it's a healing process to to really talk about it and let it out there and be accountable for the changes that you are making in your life and I'm sure that him sharing his story over the three years has helped people and so he's bettering his community and I'm sure that he's also getting some spiritual release and experience from helping people and by sharing his story. And I believe he learned, and he talked about this in the interview, that his love from himself is coming within. And there's a self-esteem can be defined only by one's attitude towards themselves. And you can see that in Killian. You can hear in his voice that he has acknowledged his past wrongs, and he's doing something about it. And he's sharing his story and sharing his recovery story and empowering people to move to move past their addiction like like he has or he yeah, he has and he did. And so now he's building this confidence in himself and it's very evident. And and, uh, also talked about that in his um, podcast interview, how he's so happy to have his brother back and to see his growth. in in the whole process. And Killian wasn't shy to admit that there was so much shame and guilt due to the rippling impact of his addiction and what he did to all his loved ones. Um, And so it became this negative sense of self and it was really detrimental to his self-esteem I'm sure that the guilt and shame even exacerbates the addiction um, because it's easy. Well, I don't know because I've, I've never been an addict or considered to be an addict, but I do know how easy it is to suppress emotions by ignoring them. And I could imagine that drinking and doing drugs can easily numb one's feelings and one's emotions of shame and guilt, which then exacerbates that person's addiction. And so, yeah, I'm seeing in Killian that uh, his recovery um, has increased his sense of worth and self-esteem by just stopping to engage in those addictive behaviors and putting aside and compromising behaviors that can coincide with addiction. And he's owned up to it. He's, it seems to me that he's feeling less shame and less guilt and finding more self-worth in, and self-esteem and self-confidence in himself by you know, sharing his story and giving back to the community and being a good person that Enda uh, knew that he always was. And another thing, um, I feel that Killian is very grateful, grateful for the people that has helped him for the, um, houses and addiction, uh, houses that has helped him. And, uh, I learned from last week's episode with Alan Phillips, that gratitude holds great power. So when you find genuine gratefulness for the people that have helped you that have people that have or programs that have progressed your positive trajectory in life that it 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 becomes empowering and and I think gratitude is a key component of any type of recovery process and it's And you can see it in Killian and how grateful he is from the support and love that he's received throughout these years. Not just from his family, but from fans of uh, First Dates Ireland. And um, I can see that Killian is very present in his life. And I've read in my research that a lot of addicts use... Um, substances to to numb and to not be present. And like we talked earlier, you know, the liquid encouragement kind of thing. And now he has created this resilience in himself and this strength in himself to be present, to be here and now, whether it hurts or is scary or whatever, but he's learned to sit in the uncomfortable. And I've said this in Previous podcast is that there's so much power to be able to sit alone and be comfortable in the uncomfortable. And you can definitely see that in Killian. Um, uh, there may be a struggle here and there, um, but that's just life. That's just being human. And so addicts or people in general are always going to be able to, are always going to be faced with those triggers for the rest of our lives, but it's how uh, how we deal with it and how we react to those triggers that really define how far we've come and how resilient we are to our emotions. But I think what my favorite part about my interview with Killian is that he has so much hope. He, He's looking forward to building his career he's looking forward to his new band that he um, is involved with now he's looking forward to more modeling and just there's so much hope within him and that I think is inspiring and admirable and he's also he's creating this beautiful friendship with his bandmates and he says how funny they are and, and the Irish I guess would say good crack <laughs> and so I think that is just so wonderful to see. And knowing as well how lonely it can be during the healing process. Uh, like I said, I've not been an addict, but I have gone through breakups and not just with romantic relationships, but like patterns, toxic toxic patterns with myself and friendships. And so to build a friendship and create healthy relationships for people to support you is very important in any type of breakup recovery or addiction and um and Killian shared that when he's saying he's building this relationship with his bandmates as well as um creating this new relationship again with drumming and finding how much he loves it and how much healing that has helped him through this process and I think the final thing that Uh, Killian showed us is that vulnerability and honesty feels good and being selfless and sharing your story as scary as that may be is so healing and inspiring and admirable and to be honest um, when you share a story you let out your secrets you let out the shame and you let out the guilt from inside of you and you release it into the world and it's not held within you. And so Killian, again, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, I'll have in the write-up uh, Killian's band, um, the, mo- the the video music videos that he's in as well, and yeah, and his Instagram. So if you guys wanna reach out to him, please do so. I'm sure he's happy to chat with anyone and share more of his story and his journey. Um, If you have any questions, please reach out to me as well at ira at wakingupfrombreakingup.com. That's my email or check us out on Instagram at uh, (laughs) wakingupfrombreakingup. And again, thank you guys for listening. And I'm going to leave you with this. Be honest with your words, be kind with your actions, be fearless with your heart, and be brave enough to be vulnerable.